salvation for us as Christians has gone like this. The reality is we are not born onto a cruise ship. We're born onto a battleship. We've got a job to do. We're meant to roll our sleeves up. We're in a war. We're in a battle. Jesus has decisively won the victory, but the skirmishes still go on. The dust is still settling. We've got a, war, we've got a battle to fight against the devil and his minions, against the flesh and our own temptations, against the world. We're going against the flow as Christians. To follow Jesus means to go the wrong way up a one-way street, effectively, going against the flow of what the world stands for and lives for. We're born onto a battleship, not a cruise ship. And these two attitudes you can see here in Matthew 16, which is kind of what I'm going to be talking about in just a moment. Matthew 16, verse uh, 24, Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whatever, whoever would save his life will lose it. Cruise ship. Whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The Christian life is one of sacrifice. Jesus modelled it. He was more than willing to sacrifice himself. He's not asking us to do what he's not willing to do himself. The Christian life is one of sacrifice. It's about laying our lives down for the one who laid his, down his own. And one path we see here, a bit like the cruise ship, it's about losing more than you try to keep. That's where it ends up. Conversely, the other kind of life he's talking about, sacrificing and losing our life for him, you'll end up saving it, end up keeping it. Well, one is losing more than you try to keep. This other, you gain far more than you ever put in. It just looks different and feels different. And today, I want to talk about those, kind of, those two contrasting attitudes. I call them consuming and contributing. There's just two attitudes. What do I get out of this or what, how can I give? But before we do, looking at just different aspects of life, I just want to talk about briefly, just for a few minutes, about the journey of humanity, effectively, since the beginning and how we've ended up in this Western mindset we've got now. Particularly in the Western world, there's been a bit of a journey. Um, and we need to see how we live within that as Christians and how much of it's affected us quite often in the church as Christians. And then we'll apply it to the different areas of life. Just a few I'm going to do as examples today. So let's look at, first of all, humanity's job description. Psalm 24, verse 1, says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Nothing we own is ours. We just think we own it. Nothing we own is ours. It never has been. It never will be. We can't take it with us. It's all on loan. Everything is on loan. He is the king, not us. It's all his. But then what happened? In Genesis 1, right at the beginning, he entrusted everything he owns to us to care for. So Genesis chapter 1, right at the beginning, verse 26. Genesis 1, verse 26. This is what God says to mankind. He says... Well, first of all, let, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. He's just been through everything he's, he's created. And now it says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, every living thing that moves on the earth. Subdue it and have dominion. Everything is mine and everything in it. I'm asking you to subdue it and have dominion over it in the best sense of those words, to rule 
with a caring attitude. Mankind, we were given the earth, this very precious, valuable domain of God's to care for and nurture on his behalf. We are caretakers. We are meant to be God's caretakers of the earth and everything in it. Made not to own anything, but to give and to nurture and to protect and to care for and so on. Stewarding, caretaking on behalf of the king himself. But then something happened. Mankind, we, abdicated that responsibility and that authority. Because sin, this desire to live for something other than God, that's simply what sin is, living for something other than him, that made its lasting entrance. And from that moment, the world at large immediately became pagan, effectively. Mankind, in the vast majority, began living for multiple gods instead of one. Lots of little kings instead of the one king. Uh, They made images in the shape of man and beast, making kings to serve multiple on our terms. The way we want them, ones that suit us. The world was still spiritual, but besides this very small band of God's people, humanity at large had no real concept of a real king or even of just one king. They had an idea of many that suited them. And that was the world for a few thousand years. But then, somewhere around AD 29, in the wake of the resurrection we were singing about and celebrating just earlier, this moment when Jesus, who declared himself to be the king, suffered at the hands of those he created, died, but then burst forth some 34, 36 hours later from this empty tomb, saying, I am who I said I was. I told you this would happen. This is me. I am the king. From that moment, Christianity exploded across the planet. There was suddenly this rapidly growing community of people living for their great king, Jesus. The Roman Empire, as a result, toppled and so on and so forth. And other one god religions reappeared. This essence of one king reappeared. Islam arrived. Judaism went on from strength to strength. Christian cults arrived and so on and so forth. The idea of a king reappeared. It returned. Although often, mostly, people were still worshipping a false version. But this idea of one king returned. But Christianity, worshippers of the one true King Jesus, through its ups and downs, and the church, Christianity, has had that. Through its ups and downs, Christianity proved to be a false to be reckoned with, living for this one true king. Christianity impacted the world, particularly in the West, in such a massive way with this original job description, being God's caretakers, in mind once again. There are massive kingdom echoes still around us in society. Things like education for all. It's the church that, that spring, kind of launched all this kind of essence and eagerness for these kind of things. Education for all, health service provision, abolition of slavery, caring for the poor. Other faiths and other groups, they've made positive differences over the years. That's not to say no one else has. But Christianity's impact still has the greatest ripple effects in our society even now. The things we're used to, the things we appreciate and cherish in our society are mostly down to the church, down to Christianity over the past couple of thousand years. Wherever the church rolled up her sleeves, invested huge amounts of money and time driven by worship of Jesus this one true king, as a result, the world was radically changed and many others gave their lives to follow Christ as a result. These are God's caretakers living out their job description once and for all. 
Now, however, things have changed again. We now live in a post-Christian world. And here's the slight difference to what I just described. Individualism has risen to the fore over the past couple of centuries in our Western world, in our thinking. It's infected everywhere. This world is now wrapped up in me, me, and me. It can include the church. That can be us. And I can see it in myself sometimes. My attitude and my response to things is still veering towards what do I get out of this? Will I enjoy this? Does this make me happy? Consumerism, me first, it rules our society at large. Now, this Western world, at a grassroots level, the society we live in, at its heart, it has a heart for justice. It loves the idea of justice. It loves helping the poor, education and literacy for all, you know, free health care and so on. It's something we, we as a society still cherish. But we, the Western world, want those good things without accountability outside of ourselves. We want it on our terms and the way we think best. Not doing it for the one true king, doing it for our betterment. Still me, me, me. Do you see the difference? I've heard someone describe, I listened to a brilliant podcast. If you love podcasts, listen to this cultural moment. There's a guy, an American guy called John Mark Comer and an Australian guy, Mark Say, I think his name is. And together they, they, they talk about this kind of stuff. It's brilliant, this cultural moment. But there's, there's one phrase Mark Sayer says that says, in a Western society, the modern world we live in still wants the kingdom, but without the king. It's very good. Our society, our Western world, wants the good bits, but on our terms. And yet, in this me, me, me world, we the church, we are the ones who are now enabled fully and expected to live out that job description truly once again. God's caretakers. We have a generous God who gave everything, including his life, to bring us back into his family. And if we are truly to live out this new spiritual DNA we've inherited from our king, then that's a freedom to be generous and to be nurturing in all areas of life, showing the world that wants this kingdom that there is a good king who reigns and invites everyone to live for him. We are, we have the opportunity to be freed from this me, 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 and instead to point to him, 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 in all that we do. God's caretakers. So the question then, what does that look like in practical terms? What does that look like in real life? Looking at those two options that Jesus describes about how we can live. It's asking, how can I contribute rather than consume? Should be a big question we need to ask ourselves to fight this infecting consumerist attitude in our own hearts as well as what we can point to outside of us. It can still be here. So I just want to look at a few things. I want to spend a bit more time on the, on the final one for, for good reason at the end. You'll see why. But let's just talk about each of these just briefly for a few minutes. What does this look like in real terms? How can I contribute rather than consume? What about our homes? What about our homes? Was uh, it the phrase, an Englishman's home is his castle? Yeah? No one tells me what to do under my roof. This is my domain. As Christians, really, we should treat our homes not as private estates, but as public places of refuge for others, as somewhere open and hospitable and welcoming and inviting. You know, when Paul talks, is it the Corinthians? He talks to the church in, in the letters to the Corinthians about hospitality. And he's saying some of you have been at risk of entertaining angels. When we think about hospitality, we often think about having our friends around for dinner. 
That's not hospitality, that's just entertaining. If you only ever have your friends around for dinner, you're never at risk of entertaining angels, are you? Have we, have I, ever been at risk of entertaining angels? And that makes me think, how open is my home? It's a good question. It's a good question. Whether you rent your house, whether you pay a mortgage, you still don't own it. Whether you've paid off your mortgage, you don't own it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So the question is, how can I use my home for his kingdom to grow in my neighbourhood? That can vary regarding your opportunities, your gifting, your own capacity. But is your home one that benefits others around you? If the opportunity came up, would you welcome the stranger into it? Are you trigger happy with an open front door policy? If we know people are coming around, we don't expect them to ring the doorbell. They just walk in. I love it. It's brilliant. But every time someone's on my doorstep, I just want to like, come in, cuppa. And the amount of times we've ended up spending an afternoon with people just because we invited them for a cup of tea, just because they happen to turn up on our doorstep to ask a question. When, you don't always have time to do that. I mean, we can be busy. But when there's opportunity, is that your first response? Or is it, okay, thank you very much. See you later. Bye. Mi casa su casa. My home is your home. Do you invite people round? How can we use our homes that aren't ours, there's something he's lent us, how can we use that for his kingdom? The home is a perfect means of sharing life and letting Jesus do surprising things with it. Question to ask, how can I be one of God's caretakers with my home? How can I contribute rather than consume? You see the difference? That's home. How about work and school? School's the same thing. Work pays the bills. That can be, often be our attitude, can't it? Well, don't really enjoy it, but pays the bills. Well, I know the ideal is to do what you love for a living. We'd all like that. But that's not always possible. And even the very best jobs come with their downsides. Perhaps that whole ideal, you know, seeking to do what you love, maybe that needs to be flipped with this in mind. Instead of seeking to do what you love, how about seeking to love what you do? If that's somewhere God's placed you for this season, that's not to say don't look for another job. You know, Sometimes it's time to move on. That's okay. But while you're there, be all there. While you're there, he's got you there for a reason. Let's try and find out what those reasons are. Work can be hard. Work can be hard. And the people you work with can be even harder. But the ideal, I'm not doing what I love, it's just something that pays the bills, that just tells us I'm not happy and we can just get discontent and we can just get bitter. That's a consuming attitude rather than a contributing attitude. And as a result, we can miss divine opportunities to see, to see, uh, uh, to, to see uh, God's, uh, Jesus' good news just be replicated in so many different ways around us. Just when we're so consumed with ourselves, we just have blind spots. We just, we just miss them. Quite often we're asking God for divine opportunities, and I'm, I'm sure half the time he's going... They're there, you're just not looking. Depends what attitude and what perception we have at the time. When we reframe work and school as kingdom opportunities, suddenly we see colleagues and classmates as fellow image bearers rather than people who wind us up. Everybody's got a story. Everybody's got a story. We've got opportunity to get to know them inside work or school, outside, whatever it might be. But when we see them as image bearers instead of annoyances, suddenly something changes. 
there's a shift in the dynamic. We have an opportunity in work, in school, as well as elsewhere, as Jesus tells us, Matthew 5, to be salt and light. We are salt and light. You get to be light in the darkest places. And the darker it gets, the more that light shines. You have an opportunity to be that person. What does salt do? Salt preserves. Salt melts. Salt enhances. If Jesus tells us we're the salt of the earth, then there is opportunity to preserve kingdom values in the places we live, to stand up for integrity, for honesty, for honour, for purity, for peace. We preserve values. We can melt the ice. Melt the ice in relationships and in politics, in the workplace and in school. Enhancing the flavour of the lives of the people around us. This is what it means to be God's caretakers. Not everyone can do paid work. I get that, that's okay. But everyone can contribute to society in some way and to different degrees and in different places. This includes voluntary work. This includes sustaining a home. Unpaid work isn't any less significant. It's still work. The question should be, how can I be one of God's caretakers here? How can I contribute rather than consume? Then it comes to the world and time. just want to speed through these just for the sake of time. But the world, for example, at least maybe this is something you can talk about more in your growth groups, but climate is changing. Despite the deniers, something's happening. The climate is changing. And the things we buy, the carbon footprints we make, how much we use our car compared to when we could have walked, recycling, plastic in the oceans. There was a documentary on TV the other day about plastic in the oceans. There's only one part of the planet that's responsible for that, and they're called humans. We've got a part to play in that, in stewarding, caring for God's planet. The food we waste, is it they reckon in our country about a third of our food we waste, we throw away? That's crazy. And if you don't throw away that much, other people are throwing away a lot more. We all have a part to play. Ethics and animal care in the, the foods we buy, things like that. There's so much opportunity there to make a difference in stewarding, caring for the world, nurturing it around us. Now, it's not always practically possible to do what you want, but it should always be on our radar, is all I'm saying. It should be on our radar. How can I be one of God's caretakers regarding creation? How can I contribute rather than literally consume? And time. You ever wish we could have a 25-hour day? An eight-day week? I do. There's always more I want to do, and I don't get enough time to do it. Time is precious. God has allotted us so much. And stewarding time actually should have the same wise approach as to stewarding money. How we steward our time should be the same as how we approach wisely stewarding our money. It should be the same. And getting a right rhythm of work, rest, and play. It's good to work. We are told to work. God, God works and then rests. We need to work and rest and getting the right balance of work, rest and play, getting that rhythm. How do you allot your time? How do you steward it to work? Either not enough and be out of a, an idleness or a laziness or too much out of a workaholism. How do you steward your time for work? How do you steward your time for rest in order to be able to work well? Do you rest well? Rest is not doing nothing. Because sometimes we can oh, I'll just watch a silly program just to turn my brain off. You're not turning your brain off. Or basically you're letting your guard down and you don't know what's getting in. Some of the most seemingly innocuous romantic comedies or sitcoms can have more dangerous values than some of the more obviously 
questionable films or TV programs. Actually, I think some of the other stuff that seems innocent can be more dangerous. Just be discerning about what you're letting in. When you're letting your guard down, when you're turning your brain off, don't turn your brain off. Just rest it in a different way. Rest is meant to be active, not passive. And it's dangerous the moment we just let anything get in. But the question should be, so it's a good thing to look at your calendar. I colour code my calendar now so I can look back and see there's not enough purple and too much red. And it, it helps me. I'm a bit anal like that, that's fine. You might not be. But it helps me look at my week's calendar and know I've, I've been working too hard, I've, gotten, I've had not enough time with my family and so on. It just helps to get a balance. Just however it works for you, but steward your time like you do with your money. How can I be one of God's caretakers when it comes to time? How can I contribute rather than consume. That's time. And then it comes to money. We can all feel the pinch when we have to think about money. Caretaking includes our wallets. It includes our wallets. The Western world that we live in is obsessed with money, isn't it? It's everywhere around us, making it, earning it, saving it, spending it. The fear of not having enough lives with most of us, probably, from time to time. What's fascinating is the Bible, it's not just a modern problem. The Bible has about 500 verses regarding prayer. And it has about 500 verses regarding faith. And it has about 2,000 verses regarding money and possessions. There's a reason. Jesus spoke about money more than anything else. 10% of the Gospels are directly about money. Why? Because its grip is insidious. Its grip on our hearts is often invisible to us. We don't always recognise what's going on. And it hinders us living out our true job, job description to its fullest. Luke chapter 12. These are good verses. Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Luke 12, 32. Jesus says, Fear not, little flock. The amount of times I think another bill comes in, have I got enough? And... And I was just starting to save up for something nice. And it just, I feel that twist in my gut about money. I feel, and yet Jesus straight away says, Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you want to know where your heart's affections truly lie, look at your bank account. Look where your money goes. It tells us a lot about where our hearts lie. The question should be, how can I be one of God's caretakers with my money? How can I contribute rather than consume? Knowing he'll always catch us. He will always catch you in different ways surprising ways and it's not always with more money the whole prosperity gospel if you give give lots of money you get more back give 10 pounds you get 100 it's ridiculous that's not gospel he may repay you in other ways but he will always catch you how can i contribute rather than consume giving is a big thing the thought of giving can make us think twice sometimes and it can make us think and realise about our own heart's affections when we're willing to listen to those voices going on inside. Giving is a big thing. Giving to the local church is an important 
biblical expectation. For two reasons particularly. Firstly, it enables us to wrench money's grip from our hearts. God first. Here is my sacrifice. This is what I've been, you've, you've allowed me to have this month, this year, this week, this day. Here's a large portion of, this is just, do you know what? I'd rather keep it, but do you know what? This is for you. It's sacrifice. It's giving him the cream of the crop, isn't it? But secondly, it enables the church herself to be more effective. We live in a real world, in a real economy. If the, ch- if the church is the hope of the world, the only place on the planet that holds the ultimate answer for hope and justice and peace through Jesus. If Jesus is our only hope for life and everything, then we are the hope for the world to point to him. If that's the case, then we, the church, his people, we need to use our own resources to enable greater impact, impacts, to release more workers, to serve more needs, to preach Jesus in every way. And that costs money. It's got to be said. It does, doesn't it? Under the old covenant, the old marriage, if you like, between God and his people before Jesus came and fulfilled that in a brand new way that we now get to live in the light of. In that what was called the old covenant. The tithe system was the 10% of your income you would give to God's um, system of worship. It was a springboard. It was was only just a start, really. If you want to turn to Malachi chapter 3, Oh, I'll read it out in just a second. He's the final prophet in the Old Testament. And here God almost dares his people. The tithe was 10%. And you, out of all your income, you would give 10% to the temple, to God's system of worship, to sustain as a people celebrating him and living for him and as a system of sacrifice. But also on top of that, there would be jubilees, which are um, opportunities to clear debts between you. And there was um, not harvesting all of your field but leaving some around the edge for the poor to come and glean for themselves and there was opportunities for hospitality 10% was just a start but it was a good healthy start of sacrifice and so then God says Malachi 3 verse 10 bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house that my temple may be sustained and bring glory to me but then he says and thereby by doing that Put me to the test. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, he will always catch you. Just imagine God's people willingly, cheerfully bringing the tithe and more in to his central system of worship, the church, the hope for the world. Imagine what the church could do with that. Just imagine. Today we are not under law, we don't have to, we are under grace now because Jesus has fulfilled the law on our behalf and now we are free to freely give. We don't have to give 10%. But we have opportunity to. Now instead of the temple and then other opportunities for generosity around it, we have the church and other opportunities to be generous around it. The church is the first priority God wants us to give a sacrifice of our income too. Give to charities, that's brilliant, but don't let what you give to charities rob God of his plan A for mission. His plan A for mission is the church. So don't rob God of that in your giving. Prioritise that. And then on top of that, you've got other opportunities to give to charity. Jenny and I, we, we, we do give to the church, but we, on top of that, 
We give it in other occasions, other, other areas, some monthly, some ad hoc, it depends. But we just seek ways to be generous in other places with people we know or people we don't know. He asks us just to give freely, to give generously, prioritising church because it is the hope of the world. That's why there's good reason why. But he says to do it cheerfully as well. 2 Corinthians, verse 9. 2 Corinthians 9. Verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind. See, no numbers involved now. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And... God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He gives us everything we need to be generous. It's not ours in the first place. It's all on loan. Out of that, what can I do with this? Stewarding our money, being God's caretakers with whatever it is he's allotted us to be responsible for is an opportunity and it's an act of worship. It's declaring who your Lord is, how you spend your money. 10% 10% was a springboard then. We're under grace now, we're under law. So if you're less able, that's okay. If you're paying off debts or the other restrictions, don't beat yourself up because you can't give 10%. God's okay with that. But also under grace, if you're able to, seek to give more. If you're able to, celebrate it. Step into the adventure of giving. Either way, are you giving at all? And ask God, how much can you give? There's an adventure of giving and seeing what God does with it. If we're on the receiving end of a generous God's full promises, then we also have the freedom with his unending ability to catch us to give more freely and more generously. Are your first thoughts about how much can I give? Or are your first thoughts about how much of this can I keep? It's the difference. How can I be one of God's caretakers with my money? How can I contribute rather than consume? God is only asking us, out of all these things, God is only asking us to do what he's been doing all along. He asks us to be caretakers with his treasured domain, the earth and everything in it. And he gave of himself in order that we, his people, as a result, might live a life freed from the enslaving grip of me, 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 And instead, we're free to sow with what we've been given. It's exciting. We should see it as such. To invest our time with people. Serving others' needs. To invest our homes. Opening them up to make a difference in our neighbourhood for Jesus. Sowing our money. And just dreaming what God could do with that. And celebrating. There are 38,000 people don't know Jesus. Right outside our door. We need all hands on deck and as much resources as possible to make a difference. It's exciting. It won't be wasted. Knowing that our God has more than enough resources of his own to keep sustaining us as we give and to provide for us on the journey as we walk, together we get to make Jesus famous. Just imagine what he could do with that. Let's just imagine. Let me pray.